Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishnadas shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishnadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. Remember once uh, Maharaji called us to his room. The bus had come to take us back to town. And uh, the bus driver was a devotee. And he knew that Maharaji didn't want these crazy Westerners stuck at the temple all night. So the bus driver stopped outside the temple and waited for us. It was a public bus. Can you imagine Denver's municipal bus 
waiting outside the temple somewhere. <laughs> and so uh, he called us into his room and uh, we sat down. And usually he would, he would come in and he'd say, okay, go, 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 job, job, job. But this time we came in and we sat down and he was just sitting there, kind of like we were just sitting there. But... And the atmosphere was so intense and so full. We just, we felt, you ever make jello? And you know, you put like grapes in the jello and they kind of get stuck in the middle, they like float in the jello, you know? That's the way we felt, like those grapes. It was so thick in that room. And it just went on. He, he, he kind of opened eyes and just go like, go. And a few minutes later, ah, nobody moved. And finally, one of the women in the group said, Maharaji, what is this? That was it. He said, He said, it's in the blood. It's in the blood. The same blood runs through all our veins. The same blood of every being. We are one. There's one of us. We got kicked out after that very quickly. <laughs> but um, a very powerful man. Most of the time he, he hid himself from us, you know. Can you hear me in the back? Most of the time he hid himself. Dada, who was one of his great old devotees, said that Maharaji had two blankets. He had the outer blanket but he also had an inner blanket that hid his real nature from us. Because if we had been able to see it, we wouldn't have been able to bear it by looking at the sun with your naked eyes. You know? So out of compassion, he kind of covered himself up. You know, it's so hard for us to understand that these great beings the only reason they're on this earth at all is for our sake. See, we can't imagine that. Because everything we do is absolutely pure, unadulterated selfishness. It revolves around me. Your me and my me. You, you, you have your life, it revolves around your me and I have my life. But these great beings, they don't have a me. They just have I. They have that one of which we are all a part. They don't have any personal agendas. They've been there, done that. They don't need anything. They don't even need us to be around. Maharaj used to say, go away is my mantra. <laughs> People would come, you know, they come from a center you know, in India, it's not easy to travel, especially in those days. They would take a bus, then they would change buses, and they'd take a train, and then take another bus. Then they'd get to the temple, and they'd come in. They'd bow before Maharaji. He said, oh, you've come? Good, now go. <laughs> he didn't need you to be there, because he's here. 
That's the other thing that's hard to understand. That these great themes are here. Right here. There's nowhere else they could be. Where are you? You're here. And when you go somewhere else and ask yourself, where am I? You'll be here. So that here is an experience that deepens over time. What that means, what that feels like to be here. Right now, most of us are slaves to our thoughts and emotions. Whatever we think or feel, we believe. We actually believe everything we think. That's the definition of insanity. <laughs> we believe everything we think. Is that nuts or what? We never question our thoughts. I feel like shit today. Why? I don't know. I just do. <laughs> so, so being here, what does that mean? So when you're singing, when you're chanting, you'll be pulled into your thoughts. You'll notice you've been thinking. But you come back to the chant. And you come back, maybe it gets a little deeper every time you come back. Maybe you spend another minute or another quarter of a millisecond here before you're gone again. But you keep coming back to the chant. That's what trains us. That creates new channels in our psyche that allow us to come back home more quickly when we're pulled away by our stuff. Most of us live far away from ourselves all the time. You know, it's like we bought a house, you know, but we put a porta potty in the front yard and we take the, the bedroom, we take the bed and put it in the, on the lawn and we live outside and we think we're home. We forget there's a door into the house. And that's how we live. We're lost in our thoughts. We're lost in our emotions. And we feel really good when some of those thoughts and emotions get all stirred up. We watch TV, go to movies, listen to music. All to pull us out of ourselves and give us a break from being so obsessive. So that when we sing like this, we're training ourselves to be here, to come back. You don't get to say, oh, I'm back now. Isn't that great? No. Then you're gone. When you're here, remember what it was like when you were a kid and you were played? You were playing on the lawn. There was no time. You had no self-consciousness that, wow, I'm playing. This is great. No, we just played. And that's what life can be like as we train ourselves to let go of the thoughts and the obsessive flow of thinking that goes on all the time. And the reason these chants work is because these names that we're chanting are what they call revealed names. These sounds were brought into this world by some great being who had a realization of that, of the truth of that sound, so to speak, of what that sound or that name is the name of. And so by the repetition of these names, Gradually, but inevitably, that presence within us is uncovered. It's the same presence within all of us, the same consciousness looking out of all of our eyes. It's exactly the same. 
but we're stuck on the superficial levels of it. And so we see and believe all the differences that we see. Everybody here probably feels like they're different than the person sitting next to them. Terrific. That's what they call illusion. <laughs> it's relatively real, let's put it that way. But not ultimately real. There's some water coming. Well, I guess I'll just have to drink coffee. <laughs> Back in the room. So, you know, Maharaji never gave us, my guru, Neem Karolimba, he never gave us practices to do. He never said, do this mantra 400 million times, do this, do that. You know, he never encouraged us to do stuff that was going to be like for the benefit of our own enlightenment or whatever. You know, we asked him, "How do you find God?" He said, "Surf people." What? Come on, you know. How do we raise Kundalini? <laughs> Feed people. Feed people. What do you mean? The world that he lived in was so different than the world that we live in. He was just trying to say, just see everybody who's God. But how do you do that? We don't even know what God is, who God is, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like. So that's what these practices are for. They're to remove our misunderstanding. That's all. Everybody knows what it is. If you didn't know what it is, you wouldn't be looking for it. So the practices are to remove our misunderstanding. Shirdi Sai Baba used to say, the guru gives ignorance. He takes away all the stupid things you think <laughs> until you just have truth, which is what's left. Truth feels good. It's a. Uh, once I was very in love with someone, and uh, I was telling my Indian father, Mr. Tiwari, who was my great teacher and my great friend, I was telling him all about this woman, and he was listening. Ah, and I finished going on and on. You know how that is. And he looked at me and said, "My boy," he said, "Relationships, they're business." <laughs> He said, love, love is what lasts 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It doesn't come and go. You don't fall in it. You don't fall out of it. It's who we are. I got really pissed at him. <laughs> trying to take my, my high away.
but he was right. He used to explain things to me. He seemed to know everything. And he'd been with Maharaja for 40 years, and uh, he was married, he had a family, he was a school teacher. Then he ran, became the headmaster of a big school, uh, and he studied the scriptures and he did a lot of practice and meditation. So much. He would explain things to me, and then the first words out of my mouth, he could see, I didn't understand a word he said. And he would go, My boy. Is there something wrong with your brain? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we used to fight about things. We had huge arguments, screaming at each other about spiritual stuff. What do you mean, suffer is this? It's just another guna. I mean, but the thing about it was that, and he used to encourage these fights. He would say things that he knew would piss me off. And then he'd go, you will fire upon me now? <laughs> he wanted to party. He really loved to fight. Because, as I found out when I lived with his family, this was a functional family. Right. You don't know what that means, do you? <laughs> Neither did I. A functional thing. It was extraordinary. There was nobody in that family that was afraid that anybody else would throw them out of their hearts. And so they were free to express themselves, to say anything they wanted, and to be themselves with ease. It was amazing. It took me a long time to get with the program. But once I did, it was great. And so we used to really argue about stuff. And we'd be yelling at each other. Nose to nose, eye to eye, looking at each other's eyes. And I'm going, wow, you can do this? Yes, you can do this. Fantastic feeling. Because when I grew up, don't look at me like that. Don't raise your voice to me. That's how I grew up. Terrified. So it was really uh, a wonderful release from all that. And allowed me to go back and clean up a lot of that stuff. Because I felt loved in a way that I had never felt loved before and accepted. You know, once I asked. Uh, Another great devotee of Maharaj's, her name is Siddhima. I said, Mom, what, what happened was that the, to our grandchildren, one of the grandchildren was getting married, right? And they came to the temple to get blessings from Siddhima. And so there was a group of cousins, maybe 15 of these kids, right? Everything from about maybe 10 years old to about 25. And I was sitting back there with them, and there was so much love among these kids, right? This family. I just was blown away. 
And Siddhima saw me and she turned to me and she said, you see Krishna Das? You see what you missed by being born in America? <laughs> Boy, nailed to the wall. Really, huh? It was... And then I said, Mom, what is it with the Westerners? Why can't, why can't we love? Why don't, can't we let ourselves be loved? She said a couple of interesting things. First thing she said, well, what were your parents thinking when you were conceived? Okay. <laughs> and what were they eating? I know what they were eating. Sacred cow. They were eating meat. Which they don't, these people didn't do that in India. And then she said, she said affection was used to control, control you as a child. It was given and it was taken away. So we learned to do business with our affection at a very early age. We, we learned what got the attention we needed because we were little things. We had to be picked up, we had to be washed off, we had to be fed, we had to be moved around. And if we wanted to be to get these things, we had to kind of show these huge forces what they wanted to see, otherwise they, didn't, they weren't happy with us. So right away, love is like thrown out the window. And affection and attention is used to control like the child. And you learn right away what, what they want. And we give it to them. Otherwise, we don't get what we need. Pretty brutal. It's not really the same now in, in, in the old India. These days, forget about it. So you got Gangbangers walking around Delhi with their pants down the here, listening to all kinds of bullshit music. And the traditions are really, much of it is lost now. But when I first went there, which was, Jesus, 46 years ago, it was still very different. So what do we do? Huh? How do we how do we get over this this programming that's causing us so much unhappiness? We do some practice. It's only a spiritual practice, and by spiritual practice, I mean something you do for no other reason than to calm your own heart, calm your mind, come back. You're not doing it to impress anybody. You're not doing it to make money. You're not doing it for any other reason than for your own, the sake of your own heart. That's a spiritual practice. And that's what chanting is. That's what meditation is. Because we need to train ourselves to release the identification that we have with all our thoughts and emotions, with all the stuff we believe about ourselves all the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves that we don't like. I'm no good. My hair is not long enough. I don't have enough hair. I'm too big. I'm too small. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. My nose is too big. My ears are too long. I mean, it goes on and on. We were trained. We're experts in this shit. And we don't even notice it. 
That's the other thing. We think that's life. Well, unfortunately, for most of us, that's what it is most of the time. But when you start doing the practice, then you begin to notice this stuff. That's when you really freak out. <laughs> so, we have to learn how to be good to ourselves because we weren't trained that way. Good to our, ourself, our hearts, and allow ourselves to be who we are and not judge ourselves so harshly. There's a song, we'll probably sing it later, uh, when there's chance. And it starts off with some English, you know. So I was in New York, and I had never sung it with a group before, so I kind of announced it to this group of about a thousand people. And I said, you know, we're going to sing this chant now. It has a little English at the beginning. So a friend of mine was in the audience, and she said, she was sitting next to this guy. And when I said that, he went, uh, I didn't come here for this. <laughs> How great is that, right? <laughs> Let's think about that. For what is it that the guy didn't come there for? <laughs> English. <laughs> now, why would that be? Hmm, let's think about that. Could it be that that's the language that we talk to ourselves in all day and give ourselves a hard time in all day and put ourselves down all the time in? Mind you, that's what it is, right? So he wants to sit there and go rah, 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 all day and not have a clue what that is. But that works to some degree because at least when he's doing that, he's not giving himself a hard time. Which is a good little first step. But it's just a first step. Not that you have to know what these words mean. You can't. What Ram is, what Krishna is, what she is, there's no way in hell we'll ever know that in here or in heaven. Never know that in your mind or in emotions. These are the names of the deepest place inside of us. The Christ consciousness within us. That's, that's what these are the names of. But it comes over in, from India, so we don't call it that. We call it something else. There's only one sun up there, right? <laughs> Shit, if I wanted to talk to myself, I would have stayed home today. <laughs> so, there's only one thing up there in the sky that we look up and get this, this light from and this heat, right? We call it the sun. They don't call it the sun in India. And what they call it in India, they don't call it the same thing in South America. And in Iceland, they got another name for it. Is it a different thing? No. It's the same thing, right? That's what this is. You call it whatever the hell you want to call it. It's the same thing in everyone and everything. Period. Now, people can get pretty worked up about what you call it. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's a real estate problem. <laughs> I don't know, but it's sort of stupid. Whatever. But it's the same thing. In fact, you know, they say that there really is no such thing as Hinduism, right? They, some people say that. Some people get upset when you say that. What else is known? 
And Hinduism just means any kind of worship is included in what they, they call Hinduism. There's Shivites, there's Krishnas, there's Vaishnavas, there's Rambakas, there's Kalimas, Das, you know, all these are different, like almost different religions under the banner of Hinduism. But it's just a name. It just means love, you know. Whatever turns you on and moves you deeper into yourself, that's good. Why should we give each other a hard time like that? Well, that's what we do. So, and we're good at it. All wars were fought over religion. You can't tell me that Jesus wanted people killed because they uh, worshipped him from the one side of the cross instead of the other side of the cross. Or called it this way or called it that way. You think that made him happy? How could that make him happy? People make people happy, you know. Got to kill people. Wow, I got on 40 hits today. This is what people do. But you know what? We do it to ourselves every day. Same thing. We crucify ourselves. We, we hurt ourselves. We deny ourselves love every day. We look in the mirror and we don't like what we see. And we just then walk away. We don't try to find out why we have those reactions. We don't try to find a way to free ourselves from all that negative take that we do all day long. That's what the spiritual path is. And there's a million ways to go about it. You can watch your nose, you can watch your breath, you can chant Ram, you can stand on your head, you can do a million things. It all goes to the same place which is what's in here. <coughs> Maharaji, this little Hindu guy wrapped up in a blanket, he loved Jesus. He totally flipped us out. <laughs> We're sitting there. One day he says, Hanuman, Krishna, and Christ are the same. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> this is not what we wanted to hear in the little Hindu Hanuman temple up in the Himalayas. You know? I went to India to become Indian. I can talk like this also very nice. I can walk around barefoot in a red dress and step in cow poop every day. Very nice. I'm too happy to do that. I wanted to be anything but me, I'll tell you that. That's the thing. So Maharaji sent me back to America. He said, you have attachment there, go back. <laughs> he wanted me to clean up my room, that's all. Same thing my mother would tell me for 20 years. Because you have to. If you don't clean up your room, you have no place to sit. If we don't clean our hearts from all the selfishness and the fear and the shame and the guilt and the anger, if we don't clean that up, where are we? How are we ever going to be? Would be happy in ourselves? There's no place else to go. There's no place else to sit except in your own heart. And if we don't clean that stuff up. It's like sitting on a tap. Every time you try to sit down, 
there's no, you can't do it. So that's what these practices do. They, they do clean our hearts. They do give us some perspective on things. And it comes from the inside. Nobody has to tell you. You, you get involved in this stuff in these practices, you start to unwind from the inside out. And, and what happens over time is you spend less and less time in heavier negative states of mind. You spend less time hanging out in darker, heavier, obsessive states of mind. It just happens. You don't even notice it. Unless you kind of like, think like, for instance, I notice that well, I was born a moper. I've moped around since I could crawl. I crawl moping. Right? I'm so good at it. I actually mope around less than I used to. It's, it's extraordinary. And I miss it. I really do. Sometimes I mope just for fun. It's so natural to me. Like, if I don't get to do it once in a while, I start to shake. But we all have, you know, our personalities that we we we're totally invested in, and, and it's not so easy to open up out of those tiny little bubbles. But that's what these practices do. And they do it naturally from inside while you're living your life. You don't have to go live up on a mountain in a cave because all you've been doing is thinking about all the stuff you left behind anyway. It doesn't work. This is it. This is it. Everything that's in your life, everything you see, this is it. Now, find a way to live with this in a good way. Because there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. Believe me, I went everywhere. And I'm telling you, forget it. There's nowhere else to go. Except right here. With what's going on in your life, everybody in it, all those people that you just want to. <laughs> they are gonna become they're supposed to be there. And they'll be there until you can love them. And then they'll just not be the way they were. Because it's not their problem, it's your problem, it's our problem. All the things we we think and believe. There's a great meditation uh, practice called Metta, M-E-T-T-A. And my good friend Sharon Salzberg is like uh, the queen of that practice. She's, she's really been doing that practice her whole life, and, and uh, she teaches it. It's an incredible practice. And metta means loving kindness, essentially. And um, It's kind of hokey at first. You know, you sit there and you repeat these phrases over and over. 
not like a mantra, but you actually repeat these phrases that you try to connect the meanings with. And there are four phrases. One of them is, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I have health, good health? And may I live at, e live at ease? Live at ease. May my heart be at ease. And you repeat this over and over at first. And, you know, after about a day and a half of trying to repeat those phrases to yourself, you want to commit suicide. <laughs> as soon as possible. At the end of this session, I am out of here, going to the bathroom, and put my head in the toilet, and flush. Because you repeat these phrases, and may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, I don't give a shit, may I be safe, you don't feel anything. Here you are, you're trying to wish yourself well. You're trying to, like, you know, give yourself a gift. And you say, like, shove it, you know? Try it, you'll see. And it's astounding how hard it is for us to wish ourselves well. Why is that? That's the training we've had. My parents didn't know. Their parents didn't know. Nobody in my family knew anything about how to live in a good way, in a real way. They were good people, but they just didn't know. They didn't know how to be good to themselves. They were there. And so how was I going to learn? And you try that practice, and it's brutal. Really, I tell you. But these people are pretty smart. Buddha was pretty cool, actually. So after about a day of this torture, they say, okay, now, think about somebody who's like, you love, who has been on your side from day one, like your grandmother, or a teacher, or somebody, certainly not your partner. <laughs> Think of somebody and now offer the phrases to that person, right? My grandmother, Nana. Be happy, man. Be safe. Yeah, be live at ease, you know. Have for a while. They're just flowing, right? Because why not? Right? This is that person who's always been on your side. Even when your mother wanted to slam you, she said, Now, dear, leave him alone. And, you know, stuff like that. That, that person. So you, your heart just starts to open and you, naturally, right? And you're feeling great. Then they say, Now come back to yourself. Abby's <laughs> safe. Abby, Abby, You can't do it. You can't do it. So now they start taking you back and forth, right? And you get a little light and you get a little light. And then, a few days into it, they say, okay, now think of like a neutral person. Somebody you really don't have a relationship with, but you see kind of regularly, right? You know, so I thought of the guy in the days when they used to rent out videos, video cassette. There was a guy in the video store, right? I would go get the videos from him. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. So I just thought about this guy. So he became my neutral person. 
So at first it was like, may I be safe, may I be happy? And then my grandmother, may you be safe, may you be happy. And then the neutral guy, right? Okay, be happy. <laughs> All right, yeah, be safe. Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, be happy, safe, be happy. Start the game. Kind of like started to spray over on him, you know, from this side. And then you go back to what? And then they want you to pick the enemy, that person, if you could. And if they could, they would. You just said, that's the guy or the person, you know? You start bringing that person to mind. May you be safe. <laughs> May you be happy, and if you're happy, maybe you'll leave me alone. You know, you just like, believe me, it gets pretty far out there. You do that for a while, then you come back to Nana. Then you go back to that kind of and that starts to loosen up a little bit, really. Then you come back to yourself again. And then it's somehow something shifted. And like, okay, yeah, I, I could be happy. Maybe. Yeah, all right, let me be safe. You start to feel something for yourself, and it's mind-blowing. It's so new and so extraordinary that it's hard to believe. So this, I, I did one of these courses, right? And then I went back to New York, and after a couple of days, I went to the video store. <laughs> I walked into the store, and I saw that guy, and I burst out into tears. I had to go hide in the porno section. <laughs> I couldn't stop crying. I saw this guy, and I thought, oh my God, I love it. It was amazing. I had to go to another store for a while. I couldn't, I couldn't face this guy. I'm trying to get my chain. But what this practice does is it begins to loosen up these knee jerk reactions that we don't even know we have when we think about ourselves and others. But we begin to notice there's really not a lot of difference between the way we treat ourselves and the way we really treat other people. I mean, we pretend to be nice to people, but underneath we're judging and evaluating and measuring. Well, they don't really like me. Yeah, that person, she smiles, but she doesn't like me. We get all this stuff going on all the time, but we never notice it. So when you do these practices, you begin to notice this stuff. And more than that, these practices, they give us a way to really deal with it that shifts it, that changes it, without wrestling with it. Like, you're not supposed to get in there and think yourself out of this hole. You can't do that. It's like trying to pick yourself up like this. There's no leverage. You can't just say, I'm not going to think that thought anymore. Yeah, that one. That's the one I'm not going to think, right? Uh -uh, no more. I'm not thinking that anymore. You can't do that. You have to find a way to release it. And that's all these practices work in very similar but different ways. And why are we doing this? We're doing this because we want our level of suffering to come down. 
We don't want to hurt as much. We want to live in a better way with ourselves and with others and in the world. We want to, we want to be happier. And that's a very natural, very wonderful aspiration. And it's very difficult to recognize how important that is to us. It's not just enough to have a nice little place to live and a good TV and a nice kitchen, and a nice bathroom, and a nice bedroom, and be where you can be comfortable because you always have to come out of your house and deal with something sooner or later. You can't hide. And that means you can't protect your high either. Let's say you get really high in chant and you feel wonderful, right? Then somebody steps on your toe and you want to rip their face right off. <laughs> because these reactions are so deep and they're so we're so trained deeply that so nothing can be protected. We have to be it has to become real to us. We have to if we want to be happy. Sooner or later, and this is a terrible thing, I know, I'm going to say it, we have to include others in that happiness. Not just our close, near, and dear ones, as they say, but eventually everybody. That's the big time happiness. But you have to start where you are, and there's enough to deal with right now, right here. But we should know that ultimately we need to we will reach a place where our hearts are so wide that anyone can come in. It's, it's open, and there won't be any protection that needs to happen on our side. The love and the strength of an open heart is stronger than any kind of negativity. You get to the place where there's nothing to protect because no one can hurt you because you have... You're tasting what's inside, the truth, the being, the love that lives inside of us as who we are. There's no reason to protect it because nobody can take it away. You just look at a person and you see they're stuck in their stuff. And you don't need to protect yourself from that. That happens. But it takes a little work. So I lived in despair and depression for a long time. I did everything I could to kill myself except to actually go do it. Drugs, everything else. Strung out on cocaine for a year and a half. Not just snorting, but free days, which is like crack on steroids. It's the most powerful form of cocaine year and a half. I used to run naked through the woods in the middle of the night score from the front of my Out of my mind. But when it came down to it, I wanted to live. So I was able to get past that. But still, I was unhappy. I had no, uh, you know, for me, the way my life was, the love that I experienced right there in India with him, with my guru, was un so far beyond anything I ever tasted that 
when he was not there anymore, I thought, well, I'll never get that again. And how can I live? Why should I live? But unfortunately, or fortunately, I had relationships that couldn't be thrown away, so I had to stay involved and take care of people. So I had to find a way to live. But you know what? Uh, I can't really take credit for it. Because what happened was I went back to India about 11 years after Maharaja died. And, um, and it is in my book, by the way. <laughs> but I will bore you. So I went back to India. <clears throat> in September of 1984, and I arrived at the temple where I used to live and where I had been many times over those years. And what I used to do is I used to get there, I would be so exhausted. If you want to sit down, if you want to sit down, you can, you know, um, I'd be so exhausted that I, I would just go to my room and I'd sleep for like a week, right? And then I'd be semi-normal after that. Well, I just so happened that I arrived at the, at the temple at the beginning of what they call Durga Puja, which is this 10-day ceremony, worship of the goddess. And every day, all there's these fire ceremonies all day long, and you have to fast until the evening. So I got there, and everybody says, oh, Krishna Das is coming. Krishna Das, come sit in the puja with us, you know. And oh. Yes, yes, oh, you must come. So all day long, I had to sit there with this hot fire going, Swaha, Swaha, God damn it, Swaha, how long is this going to go on? Swaha, Stash. It was so horrible, I can't describe it. Covered in ashes, and couldn't eat. And every day it got worse. It's hard to believe, but every day that works. So one day, towards the end, probably like the seventh or eighth day, see, now there was a break. There was a, a puja. Puja means worship, uh, like a ritual worship. In the morning for about three hours, they would do the swahas and the fire and the offerings. And then they take a break to rest, and then they come back for another three hours in the afternoon. And the break was a couple of hours, usually. Okay, so one day, and at the end of the morning session, everybody would walk from the back of the temple up to the front of the temple where Maharaji used to sit, and we'd do what they call arti. We'd take a, a light and go like this and sing this nice, beautiful hymn. And I'd sit there and stand there like this. And they were all... <laughs> so one day... <clears throat> Or maybe 20 people. Right? So one day they sang this hymn and they, everybody bowed down and put their head on the, on the bed where he used to sit. And then they got up and walked away, except there was this one old lady who bowed down and went into samadhi. She went, lost conquer, she just went to a trance, so to speak. And she didn't move. She stayed bowed down on this cot. And I looked at her, 
thought to myself, he's real to these people. He's present to these people. And I felt like warmed over shit. I felt worse than I could possibly even imagine. It felt like a knife, a spear went through my heart. You know, I saw how far away I had gone from any of this love, any of this goodness. It was it felt like I got punched right in the face. I kind of staggered over to the, the Durga temple, which was right next to that. And I just sat down like this, you know. So Siddhima, who was Maharaja's great devotee, saw me sitting there out the window. And she she sent someone to get me. So this woman comes out and said, Siddhima calling. And I said, God damn it, why don't you leave me alone? But you can't say no. So I got up and I walked into the back there. And she was sitting in this room on the floor next to his bed. And I walked into the bed, I walked into the room, and I was struck by a bolt of lightning right here. And I fell on the ground, and I was crying. I couldn't stop crying. I was, I don't know that I ever cried like that before. And at that second that that lightning bolt hit me, I saw every moment of my life, from the very moment that I heard he had died, to that moment. And it was like, I don't know if you remember frames of a film. Before digital, there was a thing called film. And it was frames like this. And it was like every frame of every moment of my life, I saw clearly, like, in the blink of an eye, the whole thing. I saw everything I had done in all that time. I saw why I had done it. And I saw that Maharaji had never left me for a second. But I had built this wall around my heart. And I refused to let myself feel it. And every wall, every brick in the wall was like, had this neon sign on it, right? This is all that, that quickly, right? And some of the signs like shame, guilt, fear, anger, all these signs going off, right? And this was the wall that I built around my heart, and I was not going to let myself feel anything. And then I saw that he was on the wall, over the wall, everywhere, that the wall meant nothing to him. He had never left me. And then I saw that I could take this wall down. But I had to look at the stuff. I couldn't pretend it didn't exist. But if I did look at it and pay attention to it and deal with it, it would go away. This was the kind of miracles that he did. And then somebody comes to the window and says they were waiting to start the puja. And I thought, what? Two hours? You know? Strange. So now I'm crying. I can't stop crying. 
And I'm kind of, the guy, my, the guy who was like leading the puja, the householder who sponsored was kind of helping me, leading me walk back into the, the fire pit in an area. And then he's holding me, he's kind of looking at me like this. You know, Indians aren't big huggers, you know. They don't want to because they don't like doing it. So he's looking over at me, and we're sitting there, we're going swat, I'm weeping, you know. Are you all right? And he kind of reaches over like this and goes, My God. It's so sweet. Born again. Period. That's not the end of the story. So I was walking around, by the way, in ecstasy. My heart. It, for those of you who might have made loved ones, imagine the whole universe in your heart, in every breath, was like the whole universe making love with me, in and out. I was walking around like this. All day long, right? So I was walking across the courtyard one day, and one of these old devotees, this lady, Mrs. Summer, she came up to me and she said, Krishna Das, are you all right? And I just looked at her, and I was like, Maharaj! And her eyes, she had these huge eyes right there, went like, boing! <laughs> she like stood there in front of me for about a minute. <laughs> and then she kind of comes back and looks at me and goes, Exactly. <laughs> and floats away. <laughs> and like, These people are so crazy. <laughs> so I was floating around in bliss. And then one day, a couple of days later, I woke up. Now try to imagine an old building that was burnt down and then it rained and all the wood got stinky and the dogs came in and peed all over the place. You know what that would smell like? That's what I felt like. I woke up dead meat, right? So I first go, <sighs> see, because I had seen over the days, sometimes the bliss would come down a little bit, but if I went like, <sighs> it would come back. So I woke up, <gasps> I almost killed myself trying to bring it up. Nothing, dead, empty, nothing. I flipped out and I went to the back of the temple. It used to be this big roof. It's probably about oh, maybe 50 yards long. Right? It's big. And, I, and you got to understand this temple is in a little valley. It's blue, green all around, this turquoise sky and the river running through it. I was on this roof raging back and forth, screaming at the top of my lungs at Maharaji. You son of a bitch! If you're going to close me, then don't open me. Just leave me alone. I don't want to know it. Back and forth. At the top of my lungs, they heard the whole valley. All these ladies in the field picking potatoes going like, who is that? I was flipped out of my mind. Leave me alone. I don't want to know so in the middle of this raging back and forth, that woman comes again and said, not calling, and then runs away. And I said, good. I'm going back to America and I'm going to tell her that. 
So Sidi Man come up to the back of the temple and was, was in the Tiwari's room, my Indian family. So I stormed up to the door and I stood at the door like this. And she said something and everybody in the room laughed. Right? I said, what did she say? <laughs> and it was explained to me that she had said that I was like a little kid who had been given a candy. And I'd eaten it all up in one go. <laughs> but I'd get another candy someday. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to my room right now, okay? Yeah. All right. I'm going to go to my room. Okay. I slept for about a week, I think. And when I woke up, I was my same normal self. And that was that. That was the beginning of, of a whole other thing. You know, I had seen and experienced that it was okay to be alive. It was okay to be alive that I, I, I could actually, there was some possibility I would be happy again someday. It was out there somewhere. So I guess it was okay to be alive. I didn't have to, it was just a whole different ballgame. It was really getting another chance. Another shot. So I came home back to America and went right into therapy. <laughs> I needed help. I had all this crap hidden in my closet and I didn't know how to get it out. It was just in there and unfortunately I carried that closet around with me everywhere I went. It was like a backpack that weighed about 300 pounds that you just used to wearing it, you don't realize you have it on there, but you don't know how to take anything out of it. So my therapist, so every once in a while I kind of reach in and take like a, a little thing out and she wouldn't notice. So I reach in, take a bigger thing out and she wouldn't notice. So I started getting dump trucks out of there, you know, and trying to get some of this secrets and weird stuff, and sadness and guilt and shame, and trying to get it out into the open so I didn't have to carry them around. And the way it works is kind of as much space as we can give ourselves to, to be and allow ourselves to be. That's how much of the heaviness that we can let go. And the deeper we go into that place inside of us, that's just how much we can let go of the stuff that hurts us. And so when we chant, we're moving in that direction. We're moving inside. We're moving towards that light inside of us. And we get more and more used to how that feels. And when things don't feel like that, even though they're feeling the way they always felt, all of a sudden it's not okay anymore. And so we can work with it. We notice that even though this may be the way things have always been, it doesn't have to be like that. But that comes from inside as we work on ourselves, as we open up. Mm -hmm.